What's up, everybody? This is Pastor James. Welcome back to the Midweek Bible Study. We should be able to finish up chapter 23 today. And we're also coming back in the middle of the eight woes, or the seven, if you uh, read a more modern translation. Um, it's uh, If you don't know what I'm referring to as to why verse 14 is not included, you'll have to go back to last week's podcast and listen to it. And I explain it there why verse 14 is not included in our modern day translations versus some of the older translations. So, Let's get started. Let's finish up chapter 23 together. Um, we will pick up on the fifth woe, and uh, we'll read this together, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk after we read a little bit. So Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 to 36. Let's read this. It says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you don't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed, self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurities. Outwardly you look like a righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness." What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people with your, that your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion, and you will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from the city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of the righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. All right, so let's talk a little bit. Now, we started off with woe number five, and this deals with the Pharisees being hyper-focused on tithing the smallest amount from their herb gardens, but ignoring more important things like justice, mercy, and faith. Now, this is quite interesting because what this does is gives us an example of something that in our culture is specifically between us and the Lord. Um, Tithing is usually a very personal matter. No one at Graham Chapel knows what other people give. Um, the only person who knows what people in our church gives is our treasurer, and they provide year-end reports for tax purposes. And so that's basically the only reason it's kept up with from that one person. Now, I never have access to these records and really want nothing to do with them. It's kind of this very private thing. And most things dealing with our personal relationship with God are private. It's why it's called a personal relationship. However, 
Jesus seems to indicate that this private matter of tithing between them and the Lord is less important than things like justice, mercy, and faith. Now, if you look at justice and mercy, uh, they deal more directly with our neighbors than they do with our personal relationship with God. But how we treat our neighbors can also be a direct reflection of our relationship with God. Faith, on the other hand, is the foundation upon which our relationship with God um, is built, and it will greatly affect how we live for and serve God, how we live according to His law. So if we have faith, we will love God, and we will love our neighbor. And this is a unique passage because it seems that Jesus is also weighing out certain laws that are more important than others. And Jesus says, yes, you should tithe. Tithing's important. But it seems that Jesus plays a a much higher emphasis on justice, mercy, and faith um, than he does tithing. Now, Jesus compares compares this to straining water so that they wouldn't swallow gnats, but instead they're swallowing camels instead. And this is is definitely a hyperbole, but, but camels are a lot bigger than that. So it seems that if you were to take this and really like dissect what Jesus is saying... That you know, justice, mercy, and faith are a lot bigger, you know, comparatively between gnats and camels. Justice, um, mercy, and faith are a lot bigger than actually tithing is. But tithing's important. Yes, you should do it. But you ignore the other more important things that God has called us to do. And so this is the fifth woe. Now the sixth woe deals with the Pharisees being so careful to clean the outside of the cup but neglecting the inside. And the Pharisees were very careful to look the part. And that's something you have to remember, that they were always focused on looking the part. Their life, reputation, and respect all hung on the simple fact that people viewed them as being holy and righteous. Now, as many of you can imagine, when you have to be something in front of the world every time someone lays eyes on you, it quickly becomes a job. Um, You know... You think about how many of you like to go home and um, do the same thing that you've done at, do at home that you've done at work all day. No one likes to do that. I mean, we have people here at our church who are teachers, and people say, "Well, you you love children, you teach children. Why would you not want to volunteer in children's ministry?" And so many of them will say, "Well, we are with kids all week long, and so um, we really just don't want to be around them." you know, longer than we have to because that's our job. It's what we get paid to do. And so we don't want to come to church and feel like we're having to do our job all over again. We want to serve in a different way. We want to serve with adults. And and, and I understand that. Um, everything that we do at some point in time can feel like a job if we're not careful and if we lose the reason to focus on why we do it. Now, um, such a large portion of my job is to plan and prepare months, weeks, days in advance, sometimes even years uh, uh, as far as stuff goes, um, especially like remodel projects and, and building plans and things like that for the church. So sometimes we have to plan even years in advance for stuff like that. So to, uh, to, to sit around in an office from, from day to day, week to week, and, and having to assess every scenario and possible circumstance that may happen for a service or this event that we're going to have and to prepare adequately for what's to come. And as a result, 
you know, it's like when I go home, I hate having to make decisions. That's one of the things that my wife and I, we, we kind of, we don't really argue, but we aggravate each other with it. She does not like make, making decisions by nature. Um, I don't like making decisions because that's what I have to do at work all day. So when I go home, I don't want to make decisions and she doesn't like making decisions. So we always have to take turns in making decisions. But the rule is for my family and the vacation is, is that I will go wherever they want to go. I will be there. I will do whatever they want to do, but I want absolutely no part in planning it whatsoever because if I have to plan it, it's like work and it's not a vacation for me. So so I understand this. And so just imagine that the Pharisees are in this situation and, and their job, part of the reason they exist is to appear holy to everyone around them. Um, they're having to present themselves in a certain way. And so such a large portion of their time and efforts is devoted to how people see them. And the Pharisees spent so much of their lives looking a certain way that they really forgot and they lost their passion on making sure that their hearts and minds were as clean as their outward public appearance was. And so what happens is, is that greed and self-indulgence comes into play and, and it becomes a common uh, thing among those people. And Jesus accuses them of this. Well, he doesn't accuse them. He judges them and calls them out on it because it's there. Jesus speaks truth. There are no accusations with Christ. He is the judge and he knows what's in each person's heart. And and think about this. Now, this, this is huge to remember. You know, as people, when we sacrifice things in one area, um, if we are trying to break a bad habit in one area or we're sacrificing something in one area, what we typically do is, is we will reward ourselves with other things to make up for what we're losing out on. Um, this is a very common trait. So it's like, you know, you'll you'll hear people talk about, oh, well, you just gave up one bad habit for the other. A lot of times people do that. Like when you're trying to quit an addiction like smoking or something like that, you know, you pick up another habit that you can do where you would normally be doing that thing. And so as religious leaders are making themselves appear so holy and, and doing all these things for the public eye, they had gotten this attitude that um, we deserve to profit. We deserve to indulge ourselves in other ways that people can't see because we're we're putting so much time and effort in being what people think that we're supposed to be. A lot of pastors have fallen prey to that same mentality in our culture today because so many people have their eye on them. They're watching them. They feel like they have to look a certain way, be a certain thing to their congregation. So in their homes behind closed doors, they indulge themselves in other things because they feel like they're sacrificing so much in other ways. And so a lot of times they indulge themselves in unhealthy things. So the Pharisees had become greedy and they had become self-indulgent and they were really focused on themselves and no longer focused on God. I mean, the outside of the cup said, I love Jesus on it, but the inside of the cup was filled with things that do not honor Jesus and do not show that you love Jesus. And so that's a huge problem. Jesus called them to wash the inside of the cup and then the outside would become clean because because here's the deal washing the outside of the cup won't make the inside of the cup clean and fit for use and it's beneficial to no one to wash the outside of the cup 
but when you wash the inside of the cup, it's very beneficial. It doesn't matter what the outside looks like. I mean, as long as the rim is decently clean and the inside is clean, you can still use the cup. It's very beneficial. After all, we as people are much more conscious about what other people see. You guys know this. I mean, like, my family has played this game for our whole lives. You know, when we have people come over, I'm sure yours has done the same thing. When we get ready for Thanksgiving, uh, we would always have a lot of people from our family come over. And so what we would do is we would clean up the living room, the kitchen, uh, the dining room. You know, we would clean all these different rooms of the house that we knew everyone was going to be. And then we would take everything that we were cleaning up and we would just shove it in a back bedroom somewhere where we knew people wasn't going to be. And so we would stuff everything in these bedrooms or in these places where no one is going to see this. And so it looks clean to everyone else. But in reality, the house was still a mess. We had just compartmentalized it. And so this is what was happening for the religious leaders. This is what happens to uh, spiritual leaders today inside the church. We try to clean everything up, and we're very conscious of what other people see, and so we're very quick to clean that up, but we become so exhausted and tired by constantly cleaning what other people can see, a lot of times we just leave that back bedroom untouched, and then it becomes so bad we eventually can't do anything. You can't even walk in there to do what you need to do until you're just ready to just surrender and do a spend a whole week cleaning out this room that's just been stuffed full of garbage for so long. And once you're willing to wash, I mean, think about this. As people, if we're willing to wash and clean the inside of the cup that no one sees, or all those rooms that no one else is going to walk into, chances are, if we're willing to wash them, we're still going to wash and clean the other rooms or the other things that people are going to see because we're still conscious of it. But if we get away with shoving something in that back bedroom or not cleaning the inside of the cup and just making things look clean, even though they're really not, we think, oh, well, that was much easier and I got away with it. So we'll do that again this coming time. And then you do it again and do it again. And eventually you wonder, well, what's the use? No one cares. No one ever goes back in that room. No one does this until eventually, like one day, you need to go back there. You need something from that room, and then you can't go get it. And so this is a lie that Satan tries to sell us as people of, oh, you know, just make it look good for everyone else. You know, just take a day off. Just do this. And in reality, the biggest thing with our relationship with Christ is not taking a day off. We cannot afford to take a day off in our relationship with Christ. We cannot afford to only wipe down the outside of the cup and not wash the inside of the cup because what we're doing is we're poisoning ourselves with what we're drinking from it because we're not devoting to making sure it's clean and pure. And then what ends up happening is, is in those bedrooms that we're shoving everything in to keep out of view of our guest, we really need things from that room, but we can't go in there and get them because... Is so packed full of garbage and trash that now we have to deal with all that stuff in order to get back to the good that we need. So this is definitely a lie that Satan sells us today. He sold it to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very guilty of this. And it's probably not something that they intentionally did. It's just something that they had fallen into and it had just become a custom of who they were at this point. And, you know, students learn from their teachers and 
you know, the people who are being trained in this are watching their leaders and their teachers do this, and so they copy them, and they're going to do the same thing, all right? So woe number seven is very similar to number six, the one we just talked about. Jesus compares the religious leaders to whitewashed tombs. He says when you whitewash... Now, you have to understand what whitewashing is. You know, this is not just painting, okay? If you paint something, if you go in and you repaint a room, you know, a good painter is going to come in. They're going to prep it. They're going to do some sanding. They're going to do the things they need to do to come in and paint this thing and repaint and really make it look good. Whitewashing is literally taking white paint and just running it over what's already there with barely any thought or effort into prepping it in any way. I can remember this because I remember things like uh, growing up uh, with my grandparents on their farm and seeing my great-grandmother's house, and it was kind of one of those things that when the house needed to be painted, it was a really cool old farmhouse, but when it needed to be painted, there was no prep work done. You just painted back over it with white paint, and so in some places, the white lead paint would be like several inches thick, and it would just be caked up and globbed up in corners and different spots. And so eventually you have this this house or this fence or something that's whitewashed so many times that from a distance it looks really good, but when you get up close you see the globs and the bubbles and then the chip spots where it's not as thick in one place it is another. And so it's really kind of a mess when you get up close to it. So Jesus compares the religious leaders to these whitewashed tombs, okay? Um, when you whitewash something, you're not really changing anything. You're not really making it look better. You're just affecting it what people initially see from a distance. From a distance, it looks beautiful. But when you get up close, you can really see all the imperfections. Um, probably one of the biggest things that I've noticed is, is right now, as the housing market has boomed in our area, you see a lot of different homes that people are trying to sell. And a lot of the homes in the pictures that's online on these different websites, the pictures look great. But as my in-laws have kind of been searching to buy a, uh, a new home and just kind of downsize as they're getting close to retirement, what you find out is when you go look at some of these homes in person, the pictures look so much better than what the house actually does in real life. And that's kind of what whitewashing is. And that's what these whitewashed tombs are. They look great on the outside. They look great from a distance. But the tombs are still filled with death and all sorts of impurity and decay. There's a rotting corpse inside that tomb. And death was one of the things that would make people ceremonially unclean before the Lord. They would be prohibited from offering sacrifices, from entering the temple or the synagogue to worship and learn. And Jesus was saying that these leaders were basically unfit to perform their duties because they were impure and unclean. They were full of death and decay on the inside. Outwardly, they looked righteous. But inside was hypocrisy and lawlessness. And I really like how Jesus used the word lawlessness to describe them because it's pretty ironic that these were the very men who were called to uphold the law and teach the law. And the ones, these were the men who claimed to be so concerned about upholding the law, and they were the ones who were actually filled with lawlessness. They were so much more concerned about how other people obeyed or didn't obey the law that they really didn't consider it about themselves. And so Jesus is really pointing out these weaknesses in their life. And so the eighth woe 
is the final nail in the coffin as to how Jesus feels about these wicked religious leaders. They had all agreed that what was done to the prophets in the past was evil and wicked, and their proclamation was that they would have never allowed that to happen, and they looked down on their ancestors before them for doing this to God's messengers. And as a result, they built tombs and monuments for these people, and they decorated the monuments, much like the Catholic Church has done for the saints. I mean, if you are familiar with the Catholic Church, they have all these statues and these saints and tombs and all these relics and stuff was always really important in the Catholic faith. Um, but that's kind of what they did for these um, prophets and these messengers of God. However, these religious leaders in Jesus' day who were doing this and honoring the prophets had been killed, they weren't any different than their ancestors were. And these religious leaders were not big fans of John the Baptist. And while the people of Israel during that time revered John as a prophet and the religious leaders um, they did not view John as a prophet. They really didn't have a whole lot to do with him. They knew that he was popular, and so they didn't challenge him a whole lot. But they did not acknowledge him as a prophet, and they did not acknowledge the fact that John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus being the Messiah. They refused to acknowledge his proclamation. Now, Jesus, being the Messiah, God's one and only Son, was there among them. And what were they wanting to do to Jesus? They were plotting on how to arrest and kill him for the past three years in his ministry. So in reality, when you look at these religious leaders, they are exactly like their ancestors. And in verse 31 and 32, Jesus divvies out a harsh truth that is um, very eye-opening, and it really is going to uh, be kind of bring things to an end for him uh, and the religious leaders. So he tells them that they are exactly like the people that they have condemned for so many years. They are they started killing God's messengers long ago, and Jesus is telling them to finish what their ancestors had started. He's like, look, you're no different than them. They started it. You're going to finish it. He calls them sons of vipers, and he asks how they are going to escape the judgment of hell. And the truth is that if the religious leaders stay on the path that they have been on, they're going to suffer the fires of hell. However, there is something that can save them from eternal punishment. Jesus says, what will save you? Who will save you from the judgment of hell? Well, the truth is Jesus. He's the one that can save them. But at the same time, Jesus is the one that they're trying to trap and kill. They're trying to catch him in the scene and doing something so they can get rid of him. Jesus is going to be the only thing that can save them but they have to be willing to accept him as the Messiah and to believe in him as being God's one and only son. And they're not willing to do that at this time. Some will later on, but most of them are not willing to do that at this time. So Jesus then prophesies like a prophet should and tells them that he is going to send other prophets and teachers and wise men because that when you remember, they talk about how we would never do that. We would never kill them. We honor our prophets. We honor these messengers of God. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you other prophets. I'm going to send you wise men. I'm going to send you teachers, and you're going to kill some of them. You're going to beat some of them. You're going to chase them out of the city. And as a result, your reactions are going to make you be held responsible for the deaths of all righteous people from the beginning of time. Now, when you look at what Jesus said, he said, look, he said, you'll be held responsible for the murder of God's servants um, from Abel all the way up until now. 
I mean, this is really important because when you look at the murder of God's servants, um, Satan has been a huge part of this. Satan wants to get rid of God's word and snuff out the message of God among all people. And so, as you can imagine, with Abel, with his offering being accepted, and then Cain slays him and kills him because of that. Abel was killed because he was faithful to God. All the people who were killed for being faithful to God from Abel all the way up through now, Jesus says these men will be held responsible for all of the killings of God's people. There's a connection in that. And people who murder righteous people because they are righteous are guilty of Abel's death and Zechariah's death and all the other prophets' deaths and even for the death of Christ. Jesus prophesies that the judgment will fall on this very generation of people because of of their determination to get rid of God's word among them. All right? Well, let's finish up the chapter today. This is Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. Let's read about how Jesus grieves over Jerusalem, and then we'll finish up. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Alright, so in this final passage of this chapter, Jesus begins to speak about the city of Jerusalem as a whole. The city that David, uh, King David, established as the capital of Israel and the center of worship for all of God's people. Now, this is so important. Like This is the hub of worship for the entire earth at this point. But it has not fulfilled its original purpose. Instead of worshiping the one true God, Jerusalem has been guilty of killing God's messengers, turning away the prophets, killing them, getting rid of them, punishing them. And here's Jesus who is the Messiah, and he's being rejected by the very people in Jerusalem. And he wants to gather the people, and he wants to protect them like a hen with her chicks, but they just will not let him. And as a result, Jerusalem is going to suffer because of this. And Jesus sees them, he, and he says, look, you're abandoned and desolate, and not because... It's empty and all the people have left it or anything like that. There's still a lot of people living in Jerusalem. But it's a spiritual um, statement. Because they reject Christ, because they have rejected the one who can save them and bring them forgiveness of sin and bring them back into a relationship with God, um, they are empty and desolate because they are lacking a relationship with God. They're cut off from Him because they have rejected the Messiah. And without a relationship with our Creator, we're all empty and desolate. And this is why Jesus, Jesus finishes up with the saying that they wouldn't see Him again until they acknowledge Him as the Messiah and bless the one that comes in the name of the Lord. So as we close up today, I, I just want to challenge you guys. If you are um, sitting here, you're reading this, and you're just thinking about this, I just want to challenge you. Um, are, do you feel empty and desolate? Do you, do you feel like you're just missing something, like there's just a big hole in your life? And if you do, uh, I just want to challenge you to call out to God and just make sure that you have a relationship with Him. That there's no sin separating you from Him. 
that there's nothing in your heart that's just kind of creating this barrier for you to interact and worship and serve Him the way that He's called you to. Because without God, we're all empty and desolate. And so the more sin that we pack in, the more dirty the inside of our cup is, the more packed full of garbage those back bedrooms are in our heart, we have to be really careful to be very intentional about doing our cleaning and getting rid of the filth and things in our life that we need to and let the inside be as clean as the outside. All right, let's pray together and I'll let you go. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful day, for the opportunity to pray and read together. God, thank you for your love and mercy. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe and trust and have faith in you. Help us to clean the inside of the cup as as well as the outside. Help us not to just pack things back in dark corners where people can't see, but Lord, help us to really give our hearts and lives to you and to consciously allow you to clean and purify us in every aspect of our life. Jesus, we love you today. We thank you so much for your son. And um, God, I just pray that you would help us to serve you and honor you and glorify you in all that we do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in for another week. We love you. We're praying for you. If you can't be on campus this weekend, don't forget to catch us on Facebook, YouTube, and podcasts. We love you. We're praying for you. Hope you have a great week.